Good morning. We're a little bit smaller this morning now that we're back from uh, summer Sabbath, uh, but I welcome all of you to the 11 o'clock service. I'm reminded of Psalm 122.1. I can quote it in the King James because many times in the church in which I grew up, I heard this greeting from the pastor. Um, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And it's a good verse, and if you read the rest of the psalm, I think it's going to go very nicely with what John, uh, or John, I keep calling him John. That's his father. Uh, (laughs) Mike is uh, going to be preaching to us about. But anyway, welcome. Please stand with me for the call to worship. From Ephesians 4. Let us live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you on this beautiful Lord's Day morning, and I pray that for each of us here, that our hearts are able to join in and say with the psalmist, we were glad that we, were, that we are in the house of the Lord. Father, uh, as we just did this call to worship that called us to unity, We know in our sinful, fallen states, sometimes we are not very united, whether within our families, within our church community, within our neighborhoods. And I just pray, Lord, that this might not be just another Sunday when we enter your doors to do what is the usual for us, but that we might bring our hearts to you, that we might seek your forgiveness and that we might seek to live in unity through the strength of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for being in our midst this morning. Hear our prayers, hear our cries, we pray in your name. Amen.
Before you're seated, take a minute to greet someone standing near you. Good morning. As Goody mentioned, this is our, uh, we're now no longer in summer Sabbath. We're beginning our uh, approach to the fall uh, uh, season here. So uh, the next two weeks, we have two services at 940 and 11, and then September 1st, we're back to three services uh, in full swing. So look forward to that. Tonight, the youth group will be presenting about the recent missions trip to Buffalo, the Love Buffalo trip, which you heard a lot about. And so I uh, would love to have you back for that at 6 o'clock. Um, as you know, Wes and Cindy are on vacation again through the majority of this week. You could please remember them in your prayers as, uh, as they uh, are vacationing, that this would be a restful, rejuvenating time for them. And we look forward to having them back. Wes will be preaching next Sunday. Uh, next Sunday, the 18th, in the evening, we have our dessert fellowship which is where we get together uh, in the community room, have uh, apple crisp and ice cream, and uh, just fellowship together, meet the new members of our community, people who are coming in, and spend some time together. And I look forward to having you there at that. On the 25th, um, in the morning, the youth group has a parents' meeting in the, in the two services, during the services. Uh, if you come to the 11 o'clock service, go to the... 940, uh, the youth group parents meeting, and uh, just remember to be a part of that. Even if you don't go, you know, you don't have a kid in the youth group, we'd love to have you there. Just come on out. Uh, That evening is our student welcome potluck, the 25th. So that happens at 5 o'clock, and the church will be providing the main stuff, the table service, the ham, and uh, some things like that. And your job is to come and bring a dish to pass, and uh, you can see information about that in your bulletin. There are a number of prayer concerns listed in your bulletin. And uh, please remember to keep uh, these individuals in prayer. Take your bulletin home. Use it in your daily prayer time as we hold one another up in prayer. Would you join me now at the prayer of confession as we uh, pray together? It's printed in your bulletin. Almighty Father, We enter your presence, confessing the things we try to conceal from you and the things we try to conceal from others. We confess the heartbreak, worry, and sorrow we have caused that make it difficult for others to forgive us, the times we have made it easy for others to do wrong, the harm we have done that makes it hard for us to forgive ourselves. Have mercy, Lord. And forgive us through Christ. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 20. I'll be reading verses 18 through 23, and then skipping down to 35 through 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. 
the day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began, and wait by the stone easel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, Go, find the arrows. If I say to him, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. Skipping down to verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing at all about this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand uh, as the ushers come forward and join with me in the singing of the doxology. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have given to us as blessings. Each of us here has so much more than most people in the world. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to give now to the furtherance of your kingdom with grateful hearts and help us to pray that others, our neighbors among us and to the far reaches of the earth, might hear about you and your love for us and the death of your son Jesus who rose again for us and turn to you. We thank you, Father. 
In your name, amen. Please sing with me. Nothing in all creation can ever separate us from the love of our infinite God. And it's not that we first loved him, but that he first chose to love us, even as in sin and darkness we trust. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who has lavished his love upon us has called us to love like he does. So let us consider how we love one another, how we encourage each other toward love and good deeds for he who has Our Father is faithful, by this all men will know. We love our Savior if we love each other too. So shout to the highest heavens and see. In thanks and praise for all he has done. As our Father's chosen people, may we live within his promise that through his holy presence we're one. Serving each other in word and in deed, we know we shall find that fellowship sweet. When we open our hearts outside of ourselves to do what he called us to do. So let us consider how we love one another. How we encourage each other toward love and good deeds. For he who is promised, our Father is faithful by these all men As we join our hearts in prayer now and lift up uh, members of our community and other needs and, and blessings, and as we go to the Lord in prayer, I invite you to join me here at the altar if you'd like to do that. Eternal God, you are awesome, 
And we come today to declare that you alone are God. There is none like you in all the earth. The heavens and the earth are full of your glory. Lord, in this moment, we offer to you prayers of worship and adoration and thanksgiving. Lord, we also come to you with those things in our lives that weigh heavily upon us. That area, that habit, that sin with which we struggle and cannot overcome. Father, we bring it before you once again today and confess it and ask that you will release us and heal us. Lord, there are many in our community who are in need today. Those suffering grief or pain, heartache, insecurity, worry. Those who struggle with illness, with failure, with loss. And in this moment, Father, we beg that you would hear us as we lift those names to you and place them in your care. You love this world that you have created far more than we do. You love every person in it, Lord, without exception. And we struggle at times to make sense out of a world that appears to be drifting away from you, drifting towards sin and corruption, loneliness and despair. Hear us now, Lord, as we pray for our world. Father, at this time of the year, we look forward to, with anticipation, the beginning of a new school year. We ask, Lord, for your blessing on Houghton College, on Houghton Academy, on Fillmore Central School, and Belfast, and Cuba Rushford, and all of the other institutions in our area. 
We hold up to you the students and the educators, the administrators, and the staff as they prepare. Father, may your presence and your blessing and your power in each of these places be undeniable. Hear us, Lord, as we lift them up to you now. Father, it is such a blessing to be able to come to you with our concerns and our cares and the things that weigh us down and exchange those things for your peace, Lord. Give us courage and the patience to trust you for every answer in your way and in your time. We pray this through the wonderful and glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our New Testament reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them through, uh, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. 
safely stand. Thanks. You may be seated. So uh, my wife, Jill, is at home taking care of Gabriel today. Gabriel decided to start coughing up his lungs, which was not a pleasant sound. And uh, Lucy, our third child, had had pneumonia twice within her first year. And so we tend to play these things pretty safe. So she's not here to hear all this nice stuff I'm going to say about her. Because uh, in case you missed it this past week, uh, it was Jill and I's 14th wedding anniversary on Wednesday. We've been married for 14 years. We are products of the last millennium. And uh, my parents were there that day. It was a great day. It was a beautiful August 7th. And the weather was very much like today. Bright, beautiful, not a cloud in the sky, nothing heavy on our hearts. It was just a beautiful, beautiful day in lots of ways. My, My parents were there. And Jill's parents and six of our grandparents who were still living, and three of them have since passed away. Uh, our six siblings were there as well. I have three siblings, and Jill has three sisters. And we thought the whole family was there, but it turns out there was more family that came. You know, uh, they're, they're, my, my six siblings are now all married, but none of them even knew their spouses then. And so they're all married. And between the seven brothers, sisters, and spouses, there are 12 kids who weren't there that day and three more to come by January. So it was a wonderful day, but things have gotten even better since then. And uh, Susie, you were there, and you were 
well, we won't say how old you were, but you were young. You were really, wow, you were so tiny, so cute. Anyway, <laughs> Susie's Jill's cousin. Sorry, Susie. It's probably, Jill doesn't like that kind of embarrassment. You probably don't either, but it was a nice to have you there then. Um, the story of my life with Jill, I think, is pretty amazing, um, and I could talk about it for a long time, but it's perfectly ordinary, really. We haven't become famous or rich. We haven't battled unusual adversity. Some of you have battled unusual adversity in your lives, and we haven't. Our lives have been, in a sense, a boring blessing. Not a whole lot of adversity to face. Just the same, even though it's been sort of boring and wonderful, uh, I can't look back on August 7th, 1999, and see anything but a pivot point in my life. On that day, I committed my life and myself to a woman that I thought I knew. And I actually, of course, had no idea who she was. And she committed her life to me, having no idea actually who I was. But we have generally been a pretty good team for each other. Each one, if you know Jill, she's generally strong where I'm weak, and I'm generally strong where she's weak. And both of us are mostly capable and willing of doing the grunt work that you have to do to keep a marriage going. I say mostly because... Like all married couples, we argue and, you know, carry on sometimes. But uh, we've also, frankly, part of our life together has been taking seriously the command to be fruitful and multiply. So if you had told me 14 years and four days ago that we would be back in Houghton doing what we're doing with four little brown-eyed kids, I would not have believed you uh, because it's just been that kind of wonderful. Now, with all that wonderful stuff in mind, I want to say something odd and perhaps off-putting, but I think it's biblical, so I'll say it. Marriage is not for everyone. In the New Testament, Paul often seems to regard marriage as a sort of necessary evil for some people, a concession to our bodily weakness, and that I'm sure is in part because he seemed to expect the world's end to come very soon, but it also is in part because he believed in the power of a life completely consecrated to God. Body, soul, spirit, all of it to God. Uh, His famous remark in 1 Corinthians comes to mind, 1 Corinthians 7, that those who can't practice self-control should marry because it's better to marry than to burn. Well, it's sort of a low bar, really, but (laughs) it's not exactly a ringing endorsement of marriage. Uh, I think we all affirm this idea that marriage is not for everybody. We would all say that with our lips. We would all assent to that with our minds. When push comes to shove, though, I think in our hearts, we tend to think that marriage is indeed for everyone. For those of us who are married, right, it's sort of uh, the center of our existence. We, we struggled to remember kind of who we were before that. For those of us who are married, it's kind of a, a just part and parcel of who we are. Those of us who are single have usually had to struggle in some way with what it means to be single. Is this a lifelong calling for me? I don't know. I don't always feel like I fit in. Who am I really if I'm not married? Now, those of you who know me well know that I'm quite frank and confessional in the pulpit. And so I'll say that from my perspective, those of us that are married don't always know what to do with our single friends. And in fact, we find ourselves saying and doing just the wrong thing often. That isn't largely because most of us who are married are mean, at least we try not to be, but it's mostly just because, as I say, we can't imagine our lives without this defining relationship at the center. 
And I imagine from a single person's perspective, it's hard to imagine having that relationship at the center of your life. And so we find it hard to talk to each other in a meaningful way. I think it's that difficulty is made even more pronounced because in our culture, we tend to have great expectations for what our marriages will be. Our culture tends to talk about our spouses as people who completely meet our needs for intimacy, someone who completes us, someone who can meet all of my needs for emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, physical intimacy, and we expect our spouses to be completely reliable sources of complete love for us. And because of this, those of us that are married tend to look at that relationship as being the very center of our lives. But I can't stress enough how that idea didn't really come to us from the Bible. That idea came to us, uh, I think, much more from Hollywood than from Scripture. And, and Hollywood tells that story really, really well and really, really often. So we've kind of internalized it and we think of it uh, as reality when in fact it's not. In fact, if I can put it bluntly, I think it's a lie. I think it's not true. And, and lies have consequences, And this particular lie has consequences which just litter our cultural landscape and hurt lots and lots of people. One consequence of this lie, I think, is that people have come to expect too much from their marriages, right? Uh, People, it's like when you send a youth group off to this awesome national retreat where the most amazing band is and the most amazing speakers are, and they come back and they're like, well, church is boring compared to that, right? And so when we have this picture of what marriage should be, we take a look at our real marriages and we say, really? Really? This is who I married? Well, he's getting bald. She's getting fat. He's grown distant. She won't shut up about her needs. He's ungrateful. She doesn't appreciate me. Our kids add a whole other layer of difficulties. And and they compare their real lives to the expectations they have for marriage. And they feel like failures. And so marriages are harmed by this lie. Because spouses, in the end, turn out to be human (laughs) and not God. And, of course, this lie, I think, has other consequences as well, right? There's a college here in our town, in case you haven't noticed. And this college is the center of many of our lives in many ways. And this college, in case you hadn't noticed, has many more young women that attend than young men. And so, even if you supposed that everybody who came to Houghton found a match, every man, that is, there would still be a couple hundred women who left Houghton without finding the person they're going to spend their lives with. And of course, many men and women leave Houghton for many reasons without finding their spouse. But, but any theology of marriage that tells young people that marriage is the only way, the primary way, to get all your needs for love met, to get all your needs for intimacy met, when we tell young folks that in a culture, in a context where we know they can't all get married, well, that's not nice. <laughs> and it's not true. In the evangelical subculture in which we live, it's not just Houghton. There tend to be many more young women at this stage in history serious about their faith than young men. It implies to young women that the gateway to happiness is finding and catching a man. And as a found and caught man, my spouse would tell you that's not true. (laughs) That's not the only gateway to happiness. So that's a problem, too, with this idea that this is what marriage does. And, and there are other consequences to this as well. Most of you know, uh, maybe you don't, I don't know, but most of you know that same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships, that's a research interest of mine. And, and I meet Christian young people who experience sexual attraction for someone of the same gender, and they didn't consciously choose it. And one of the things they struggle most with is loneliness. 
They want to be faithful. They want to follow the call of Jesus when it's difficult. But they've lived in a culture that says, if you want to be fully human, you get married. And so we have this phenomenon in our culture where young uh, Christians with same-sex attraction will look at traditional Christians and say, you want to condemn me to a life of loneliness. You want to condemn me to a life without intimacy. That's, I mean, I'm traditional on these issues, and that's not what I want to do. I don't want to condemn anyone to anything. But part of the reason people feel that way is because they've intuited the message that the culture has given them and that the church sometimes has given them, that marriage is the way to emotional wholeness, that marriage is the only way to live a happy, fulfilled life with appropriate intimacy with other people. So there are all kinds of consequences when we believe this lie that marriage and family is the only way to receive love, to receive intimacy, and to find meaning. We have to do better. We have to do better. But how? How? Well, that's a big question and it would take a long time to talk about. But I want to start by pointing us at the Bible. I want to point us at the second half of the... Uh, second chapter of the book of Ephesians that Goody's read for us this morning. And in this section, Paul is speaking to a church that is divided by religious heritage, Jews and Gentiles. And as any student of the New Testament knows, many uh, of the, much of the content of the epistles, much of the early days of the church, was taken up with this question of debating how Gentiles could be fully included in the faith. How can they be fully accepted into the fold if they haven't started off with all the presuppositions that the Jews did? In short, how Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian? And Paul starts this part of it by reminding the Gentiles of their spiritually empty state before Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Without Christ, he says, you Gentiles were distant from God, you were distant from his people, and he uses very relational language and says that without Christ, you were strangers. You were aliens. But since Christ has come, since Christ has died, since Christ has risen, says Paul, you who were now or once were far off have now been brought near and Christ himself has been our peace. He has made it possible for us to have intimacy with the Father and with each other. He has made the Jews and the Gentiles one and has destroyed, obliterated the hostility between the two. That hostility that once kept you from genuine relationship with each other. And ultimately, here's the kicker, the fact that you now have genuine relationship with each other is part and parcel of the way that God is making it possible for you to have genuine relationship with him. So Jesus comes and he he proclaims peace to you who were far, peace to you who were near, peace to you, peace to me, peace to everybody. I love the image of Jesus here, just sort of sprinkling peace wherever he goes. Peace to all, all for the sake of building us together into a household, into a family of God. With Jesus occupying the prime position as cornerstone, with the apostles and the prophets providing the foundation. Now, this is an amazing passage for all kinds of reasons, but I think maybe the most amazing is the way that it says our human relationships are essential to this. I've used the word amazing twice in the last 20 seconds, but I'll use it again. Our human relationships are essential, central to this amazing task, making a home for God in the world. 
Now, I, I, I know that you can push metaphors too far. But consider this for a second. We together are a house for God. And so only as our relationship with each other is strong can we effectively show the love and light of God to a dark and lonely world. For, for a long time, we evangelicals have tended to talk about the importance of inviting Jesus into your heart. And that gives us the image so that when we all gather together, there's Jesus in your heart, in your heart, in your heart, and he's in about 120 different hearts here this morning. And this image doesn't say that image is wrong, but it complements it by saying, no, 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 Jesus is here with us together. He's living amidst us. He's living in the context of our relationships. If this is true, reconciliation is at the very heart of the gospel. If we're going to build a house for God, we only do so together. If we're to be a family of God, we're only a family, meaningfully, if we're together. Now, this is good news. This is good news for a society like ours, which is at once fascinated by the traditional family and repulsed by the traditional family. It's very good news for those who are unmarried, for whatever reason, because it says that meaning, purpose, intimacy in life is not accessed through the traditional family alone. In fact, not even primarily. It is accessed through becoming part of the household of God, which is open to all people. Now, you've heard me talk in glowing terms about my wife. I love her dearly. I wasn't lying when I said those wonderful things about her at the beginning. Marriage, traditional marriage, traditional family, having a bunch of kids has been one of the ways that God has shaped me, molded me, grown me. There's no question that I'm a different person than I was on August 7th, 1999. And one of the main reasons is that I made a commitment to to someone and that has changed me profoundly. And I'm thankful. But this passage lets go of the need that I have to say, that's how you have to do it too. So it's good news for the unmarried. Frankly, it's also very good news for those of us who are married but occasionally disappoint our spouses. That's everyone who's married, actually, right? Because it allows us to not carry that crushing burden of guilt around for failing to be Jesus all the time to our spouses. Yes, I would like to be as Christ to my spouse, but I let her down. That's part of the drill. (laughs) That's part of being human. It's also very good news for those of you who are married but sometimes disappointed in your spouses. It means you don't have to worry every second that your marriage isn't all that it could be. Because your spouse is not responsible for meeting all of your needs. And it's also just very good news for the world in general. A world where we need reconciliation, where nations need to reconcile, where peoples need to reconcile, where churches need to reconcile with each other, and where finally we need to reconcile with ourselves. The gospel, if this is true, the gospel is about God taking people who look wildly different from each other and building them into a house so that he can be made manifest in the world through their love for each other and through our new life together. Now, that's good news, but it's news that's very hard to accept. Practically, it's hard to accept. Because it it calls us out of ourselves, and it calls us to reconsider our marriages. It calls us to reconsider, perhaps, some of the things we're disappointed with in our marriages. And it calls us to reconsider our churches, 
there are a couple things I want to highlight that I think this passage really puts the onus on us to do. A couple demands that it lifts for us. Um, I don't want you to think I'm perfect at these demands, but I think this is where this passage pushes us, and so I want to highlight it for you. One is pretty short, but I think it's important to say. I think this passage demands that we take genuine Christian unity seriously. As evangelicals, we have traditionally cared more about truth than unity. And caring about the truth is a very healthy thing. Uh, I I was raised a Baptist. Uh, I'm in process now of fully becoming Wesleyan, fully saved, fully sanctified, but I was raised a Baptist. And uh, Baptists have this reputation for being more concerned about truth than unity. I'm sure that you've all heard the joke about the Baptist who was uh, marooned on an island and after some years of being there by himself, a ship finally came to rescue him and they saw three little huts and the fellow asked him, well, what's that one hut? And he said, well, that's my house. And he said, well, what's that hut over there with a the cross on it? He said, well, that's my church. And he said, well, then what's that other hut with a cross on it? He's like, that's the church that I used to go to, right? <laughs> so Baptists have this reputation for being more concerned with truth than unity. When someone offends us, offends our sense of what's right and wrong, we say, you know what? I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to go and I'm going to follow the truth. Okay, take that as a good thing, but we can't ignore the implications of passages like this because this passage tells us that it's not a whole bunch of different congregations of one that honor God. Instead, these passages like this challenge us to this idea that Christian unity is something that really does matter to God, that God is really building us somehow into a house together to honor, that there's somehow a key to the gospel that it reconciles people and that God is honored in the fellowship and new peace that people enjoy together. So it matters how we interact with other Christians in other towns, in other denominations, with other theologies, right? Truth is important, and the truth is that unity is important. So they're not opposed to each other, truth and unity. One of the parts of truth is that unity is important to God. So that's one thing. The second, though, that I really want to spend some time on is that I think passages like this demand that we take seriously the needs of our communities as our own needs. I like autonomy. I like liberty. I like freedom to do things and to make decisions as I see fit. I like having the final call on what I'm doing and when. And of course, to some extent, that's unavoidable for all adults. We do have to make those choices. We do have to set boundaries in our lives and to say, this is my sphere. Yet at the same time, when I think about my family, my family responsibilities are certainly things that I allow to cut into my sense of personal autonomy. Uh, My son Gabriel, when he cries at 2.30 in the morning, I don't think to myself, I am setting boundaries here, Gabriel. I am exercising my right as an autonomous individual. I do not want to get out of bed. It is not best for me to get out of bed, and I will not be manipulated. That's not what I say to Gabe. No, I do what parents do. I get up, I push the pillow onto the floor, I grumble a little, I go over to the kid and say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you sleep? You know? Then I get him up, he comes over, I feed him, give him the sleepy mommy, mommy feeds him, we put him back in bed, and then he gets up again, 
right? That's what we do. Why? I get up because I realize that Gabe has a legitimate claim on my time. In the same way, right, I love to run. Those of you who know me know that I love to run, and I love to run long distances. But since Gabe has been born, it's been a busy, busy time for our family, and I, my running has had to take a back seat sometimes. Last night I thought, I want to run 10 miles, and the day just kept going on and on and on, and finally it was 8.45 at night, and I was like, here we go, 10 miles, you know, and I got back at whatever, 10.15, and I thought, this stinks. This is, I, it was such a beautiful day, and here I am running at 10.15 at night. But you know what? My family needed me there in the daytime. They have a legitimate claim on my time. So I have to let go of my own autonomy in order to contribute to their well-being. And in the end, of course, I'm not only serving them, but I'm serving something that's for us. When I make our family strong, that's not just helping them. In the end, it even helps me to have a strong family. So I think this passage is suggesting in the same way, maybe, that the needs of our community, specifically our church community, are real, genuine needs, which to some extent have legitimate claims on our autonomy, on our time, on our effort, right? If we together are to build a house for God, then the ties that bind us together are important to keep us strong, even when it doesn't immediately uh, seem rewarding to us, even when it's not immediately rewarding for me to personally, even when it's difficult to make the time and the effort, it is worth it sometimes to keep the relationship between us strong. I don't know how you feel about this, so take it with a grain of salt if you like, but as a pastor who occasionally did marriage counseling, I always admired couples who came to me and said, we're staying together for the sake of our children. Now, this isn't to condemn folks who have made different decisions than this. I'm just saying I admired that, that sense that people had about, I were staying together for the sake of the children. There was a sense in which their marriage was not rewarding to them right then. But they were able to say, there's something greater I'm serving. And so I'm willing to stay together with you. I honor that. Even though I realize the world is a murky place with lots of different reasons, I don't want to get into all of it. Just to say, I admire that sentiment. Perhaps what we need to say in this case is that our relationship with each other, believe it or not, churches are not always rewarding for everyone who's part of them. Did you know that? I'm fully aware that probably 60 to 70% of you didn't get up this morning and say, yes, church, right? But there's a sense in which you're here to meet God in hopeful expectation, but also because the church needs to go on. Relationships need to be maintained and kept for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because our relationships are one of the ways that the world sees God in us. Perhaps we can say it best this way. We stick together for the sake of our Father, We stick together for the sake of our Father. There's a way that the world sees our Father through our togetherness. And so even when it's not rewarding right now, we stick together for his sake. And this is where I really feel like we need to do better. And I I struggle with how to put this. There's a a nebulous feeling inside of me that I just couldn't fully get on paper when I was writing this sermon. Because on one hand, Houghton does this stuff better than any place I have ever been or seen. I love this place. And it is inscribed, it is burned on my memory how nicely you treated me when we moved in. People brought us cakes. People brought us pies. We happened to move in around this time of year, so people brought us fresh blueberries. 
People unpacked our moving truck with us. It was the end of the summer. I now know that's the end of moving season around Houghton. I'm sure there were people like, oh man, another guy to move in. But you did it. You invited us to church. You hugged us when we came. You were generally so hospitable. And here's the thing. That wasn't just a facade. Like, you've continued to be nice to me. Sometimes without reason, right? That's, that's what it has been to me. It's, it's not just that you made that up and then stopped. When, when Lucy was born first and when Gabriel was born, you brought meals for us. You've, you helped us out when we moved again from one house to another house. We, we've enjoyed meals together. We've enjoyed discussions together. We've done life together, and, and it's been amazing. But, but there is somehow, and again, and I don't know quite how to put it, there is somehow a, a sense of, of deep dissatisfaction with the community, with what maybe with Houghton, what, what Houghton has been or, or what we're worried that Houghton is becoming. There, there are stories that we each have, and, and maybe you only tell me these stories because I'm a pastor type, I don't know, but, but there are stories that we each have of how the community has let us down or how we're just certain the community is about to let us down. And, and it's, almost, it's almost like we cherish these stories. It's almost like we, we rehearse these stories because we... We, we cherish the idea that we are a gift to Houghton rather than the other way around. Right? Deep, deep down there is this feeling of dissatisfaction with how we do life together. Somehow, some way in Houghton, there is a, a, a current, an undercurrent of loneliness right here. How could that be? I mean, how, how could that be in Houghton? I, I remember the first time that we had a, a mailman drop off a package at our house, and we weren't there. Well, I was there. I was changing Gabriel or Jack's diaper upstairs, and I heard the doorbell ring, and I just couldn't go down. I heard the door open, and the mailman left a package inside. That's the kind of stuff that never happened in suburban Philadelphia. Just mailmen let themselves in. What kind, how could there be an undercurrent of loneliness in a place like that? In a place that sometimes gets derided as a Christian Mayberry. How could there be, how could there be loneliness here? I don't know. I have an idea. Most of you know that I went to Houghton as a student. I graduated in 1999, about 11 weeks before I got married, I reckon. And when we made the decision to come back to Houghton, I was defensive. When I told people I was moving back to Houghton, they looked at me with this look. They kind of narrowed their eyes a little bit. And, uh, and I read those things. I read those eye narrowings. And it's like in those eye narrowings, I could see them saying, huh, going back to your old life, huh? Trying to recreate your college years, aren't you? Can't hack it in the big, bad, suburban world out here. So you're taking the easy way out. You're going back to your romanticized home, to your alma mater, aren't you? And I could just feel them thinking that. So, I would try to head it off by explaining, no, 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 this is a really good opportunity. It's a, we were moving to Houghton because it's a good opportunity for Jill's career. Maybe I would get a job there too. I don't know, but, but, but whatever the case, it, it was just a good opportunity for us. And it could have been any Christian college, really. But, but Houghton was the one with the opportunity. And so because Houghton was the school where the opportunity presented itself, yeah, we'll, we'll go back to Houghton. That's what I said. But do you know what I was thinking inside? what I wanted to say, but I felt like I couldn't say. What I wanted to say, but felt like I couldn't say, 
was that this, I had been to this community that once upon a time had called forth the very best in me. Something I didn't know I had in me. It called it out. And I wanted to go back there because I thought they could call it out of me again. And I thought they could call it out of my family, my children. I wanted to say that, but I was afraid to say it because I was afraid people would think I wasn't savvy. I was afraid they would think I was a simpleton. I was afraid they would think I didn't have the chops to make it in the real world. And so I went back to Houghton where I could pretend to be a college student forever. Mostly I was afraid to say it because deep inside I was afraid I wouldn't be the hero of my own life. That you all would be the hero of my life. And I think a lot of us carry around an inner life something like that. We are at once aware that we have so much to be thankful for because of this place. But at the same time, we're aware that if I show too much dependence, if I don't hold it at arm's length just far enough, I'm going to look like a simpleton who couldn't hack it anywhere else. And so we're afraid to show our dependence on each other. But here's the thing. That's what this passage is about. Neither you nor I is big enough to build a house for God on our own. We're not big enough to do it as married couples. We're not big enough to do it as traditional families. We only do so together, building on Christ the cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And an undercurrent of loneliness in our community is something that keeps us from doing that. And so that loneliness, whether it's something the community deserves the blame for or not, whether it's real or perceived, whatever that loneliness is, it's something we need to fight together. How do we fight loneliness? Well, we do so first by doing what I've been saying steadily along in this sermon and steadily along for my whole life, if you ever listen to me. right? We make time for each other. When Gabe cries at 2.30 in the morning, he is entitled to my time just by virtue of his crying, just by virtue of the pain he's feeling, whether or not he has a reason for the pain he's feeling. He's entitled to my time. Just like that, your loneliness, your pain, is reason enough for me to see what's wrong. So we fight loneliness by eating meals together. We fight loneliness by praying together. We fight loneliness by holding each other accountable. We, we fight loneliness by finding ways to talk that don't involve the internet, for heaven's sakes. We, invite, uh, we fight loneliness by inviting each other to use our God-given gifts to help the community, even when it's not convenient. We do them so we can do our shared job the best way we can. But the flip side is we also fight loneliness from within by doing our best to gratefully receive what the community has given us, even if it doesn't seem like a whole lot on a certain day. We fight loneliness when we refuse to allow our insecurities and our anxieties to dictate how I interpret the way that you act towards me. 
We fight loneliness when we choose to give each other the benefit of the doubt in our interactions. We, we fight loneliness when we choose gratitude over cynicism. We fight loneliness when we choose clear, loving communication when it would feel much better to shake the dust off my sandals. Thank you very much. Enough. I started the sermon by talking about Jill, so I'll end it by talking about Jill too. When we got married, I was in terrible shape. Those that knew me in 1999 would know that was true. But on our honeymoon, we decided to take a hike up Mount Lincoln in New Hampshire. It had been a place where I had been as a kid, and I told Jill it was a really fun hike. And so I said, let's go do it. And so it was awesome. It was a great day, but we were taking it as a day hike. We're not really campers, and so we, we didn't have any overnight gear, but it was a longer hike than we had anticipated, and we were coming down the mountain. And those of you who do a little hiking up mountains know that often going down is harder than going up in some ways. If you have good cardiovascular, if you're kind of in good condition, you can hike up, but hiking down is hard on the muscles if you're not used to it. And so we're hiking down this rocky mountain, and as we were going down, my quadriceps muscles, these muscles right here, kept cramping up. They were cramping up something terrible. We'd go down these, and I'd have to stop and wait, and as we were stopping and waiting, we'd think, I can't stop and wait anymore. It's getting dark. <laughs> you know, so we keep going and we keep going. I'd keep fighting through these cramps. We ended up, it was a happy ending. We got to the car before dark, don't worry. But, but I was intensely sore for the next two weeks probably, but certainly for the next few days, right? On our honeymoon, Jill looked like a normal honeymooning 22-year-old, whereas I looked like I was about 111. I was walking around like this, and I, I would have to take forever, get up and down stairs. I looked horrible. And Jill, teasingly, gently, as Jill can do, started calling me decrepit husband, was her nickname that she gave me. During that time, she was so gentle with me. And in my mind's eye, I, I still today, right, then and now, I, I still get a glimpse of what marriage would be like if I were sick and she needed to take care of me. Many of you who have been married know that side of the coin from one side or the other, being sick and being cared for. And I had a sense then that this person, even more so than on the perfect day we had gotten married, on the day when I was sore, I had a sense that she could take care of me. It's then that I, I felt a certain security that I had married a good one. I, I, knew, I knew that day that I could cast my whole lot in with her. Of course, I had just done that a week before, so I'm glad I had that sense, right? But I knew it deep in my bones on that day. I knew that I had married someone who, who by her love, could call me to be somebody that I never was before and never could have been on my own. This is the good news. That's not just for husbands and wives. My relationship with Jill is admittedly different than my relationship with the rest of you. I'm not married to anybody else in this room. But my relationship with Jill is different from you, my relationship with you, more in intensity than it is in kind. Just like Jill and I, we have the potential to call forth the best in each other. And indeed, we have the privilege, the obligation, and the high calling to do so because we have this calling of doing something none of us can do on our own. None of us could even imagine doing it on our own. Showing God to the world. That's lofty. 
And it demands prayer. So let's close in prayer now that we become that sort of people. God, we thank you for calling, as your word says, calling and setting the lonely in families. But we know, God, that it's not simply earthly families that refers to. It's talking about this that we experience here today, albeit imperfectly, but the family of God. That you have called us out of ourselves into a community that can call forth the best in us. For those of us who are married and whose marriages push us to that kind of joy, we give you thanks. We pray, God, that you would make us very sensitive to those in our midst who, whose marriages are not what all, all that they could be or who are not married at all. We pray that this would be a place where those folks, too, find their place in this great high calling we have together. Make us this sort of people who, by our love and by our reconciliation, show something forth of the triune God to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand as we sing our closing hymn, number 479, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Oh uh-huh.
there are some hymns and songs you sing because you feel so thankful that that's the way it is. There are some hymns and songs you sing and you think, by God, let it be that way someday. There's a word for that. It's prolepsis. When you gather at the communion table, part of it is looking back and getting echoes from the past. But part of it is looking forward and getting echoes from the future. When I sing this, that's the kind of thing I want to encourage you to see. This idealized picture, you know, when we asunder part, it gives us inward pain. Probably not right now. You're all going to go home. I'm going to go home. But I hope to see an echo of what will be in our life together this week, this month, this year. May God make it so. Go in peace.